This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 688, Flashback to Exiles, number 1 to 19. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 688. It's my flashback episode, this time looking at Exiles, number 1 to 19. So when we're talking about Exiles, we're not talking about the Exiles book from, what was it, Ultra Comics or whatever that other company, with Malibu, sorry, I think it was Malibu Comics, uh, with, uh, no, it's not that Exiles, not the one that had Juggernaut briefly on it as a, an attempt to resuscitate sales, no. This is the Exiles book that was originally published in the early 2000s. Uh, originally in 2001. Um, specifically, I'm going to look at the issues that are collected in the Exiles Ultimate Collection Volume 1. I think it's been reprinted or rebranded as the Exiles Complete Collection. Uh, for some reason, I only ever bought the first volume of this, and that's definitely a regret of mine. I have uh, the original 100-issue run, and definitely um, something I enjoyed for a long, long time. I think the near the end, I was definitely I think ready for it to end as the book had changed, but something special, especially about the first year and a half uh, by Judd Winnick, and that's what I wanted to talk about on this episode, is to kind of, uh, you know, talk about it a little bit. I've talked about it briefly in passing in prior conversations with Judd Winnick and with Mike Martz and Tony Bedard, uh, who at different times in their careers worked on Exiles. Um, you had Mike Martz and Judd Winnick were involved in the creation of the book, and then you had Tony Bedard coming on to the book much later um, in the run, and you also had Ch- other creators like Chuck Austin, etc. But today I just want to talk about the first year and a half, because I think the first year and a half to me is the, the purest expression of what Exiles was and could be. Um, I think the, the book definitely changes over time, and I, I think there's a lot of reasons for that, and one of them is just success. Uh, there's something about the, the the principal idea of Exiles is kind of a combination of quantum leap meets, meets sliders, uh, as you have you know these, these characters that have become unhinged from their own reality, so they're all kind of foreign and kind of different tw- um, twists on familiar concepts and characters that we're used to, and they're going to kind of more memorable pieces of what we would think as Marvel history, or there's branching points, kind of like what ifs, so it's kind of like Sliders meets Quantum Leap meets what if, and you have all these different alternate Marvel universes, and you have all these characters, and they have to kind of fix something that's gone wrong, or set something right in these realities. Um, and not everyone always makes it out. Uh, characters can die, at least that was kind of what I liked about the initial premise, is that characters could die, or things could change. These characters uh, were not, you know, the, the classic core 616 characters who, you know, for, for better or for worse, for the most part, you know, we're eventually always going to kind of reset the factory settings. Uh, we're with obvious, you know, not always, but generally speaking, that seems to happen. Whereas in here, it felt like there could be real consequences. Things could really happen. Um, in the first year alone, like you have deaths, you have, you know, you start to bond with these characters and then things happen and it's emotional. And uh, again, the first year and a half, I think, is the most. Uh, tidiest expression of this, and what really sells the first year or so, is that a lot of the stories are two issue arcs. You know, this is you know 2001. You're starting to have the era of decompression. It's starting to creep in the idea of people having longer and long, longer storylines. Whereas here was very you know, tight and condensed. And part of it was probably that they were never really sure when the book was going to get cancelled. Like, it was you know, people liked it, but it was never necessarily a hot seller. So, you know, it was just a really critically I, I think a critically loved book. I could be wrong. I don't remember really a lot about what the critics were saying at the time, but um, as, a, as a reader, I always thought it was very special. It was, it was something different. You know, if you're going to 
you know, have a book with a slap and X on it. I mean, let's be honest, a lot of that happened in the 90s. You had a lot of X-related books, and they didn't always have their own sense of identity. I think there was a time when most of them did, and then they kind of started becoming homogenous. Like, this in the early 90s, you had, you know, when you had X-Men Blue and X-Men Gold, there was, there was a different feel to those teams because of the team characters on them, and you also had very different art- artists working on them, so which lent totally different identities to those books. But as the years progressed, you had a lot more kind of proliferation of characters going back and forth, and so there was less of a sense of identity. X-Force obviously had a very clear sense of identity, Identity, but then when they kind of moved back into the school, it felt like they were losing a little bit of the senses, sense of self. Um, so again, you had a lot of different X-Books, and now you throw in another one, but this one feels different. And it's kind of past the, the best heyday of the X-Men as being this triumphant juggernaut in terms of sales. Like, you know, the books were not... There's a reason why you had Counter-X, or where you had things kind of being relaunched from the ground up, or stripping things down to their bare parts, and kind of relaunching, doing soft relaunches in the middle of books. Because, you know, sales weren't necessarily great. And again, you're going this, through this period where Marvel's experiencing bankruptcy protection, so which again, it feels so far away now. It's been 20 years, and I remember at the time when all that was happening, my dad being like, well, I guess you're not going to be able to read comics anymore, and I'm like, shit, that could happen? <laughs> Uh, and you know, I guess it was close to happening, and it's just interesting that my my love and my my real love of comics really didn't blossom until like ninety five, ninety six, which was kind of like the worst period. A lot of people would say like you know, uh, creatively bankrupt um, and you know financially bankrupt, and. I don't necessarily feel that way. I think there's a lot of stuff I enjoy there. A lot of it's nostalgia, and I know that. Uh, something that you respond to as a kid is always going to resonate in a different way than something you read when you're older. Not necessarily always true, but generally speaking, like there's there's something to that. Uh, that being said, like I remember certain comics. I'm getting a little bit off field for a second, but I remember certain comics I read in the not, in the early 2000s. Like I remember reading in uh, Brian Michael Bendis' Daredevil run, and when you finally had Bullseye come back to the book, and unfortunately, you know, the movie had happened, so they kind of gave him the weird tattoo with the target in his forehead, but they had this brutal battle with Daredevil and uh, Bullseye, and there's this moment, and I, don't, I forget who lettered it, but they did such a great job of really making you feel the tension by, you know, really um, accentuating, like, the, the, the dialogue and, 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 and the fonts used. Anyways, you have Daredevil, like, screaming at, at, at Bullseye, because obviously Bullseye's killed, like, Elektra and Karen Page, and it was, you know, threatening Mila at the time, who was uh, Daredevil's girlfriend, so he's, like, screaming at him, and he grabs, like, a rock, and he starts, like, carving into um, Bullseye's head where the where this target is, and it's that always sticks with me. I remember reading that. It was a hot summer day. Um, I believe it was, I gotta say, I think it was 2003, maybe? Um, I could be wrong. It could be, no, I think that checks out. I think it was 2003. I think it was the, the summer of SARS. I don't know for people who remember that, uh, especially those in, people in Toronto. But uh, you know, there's you know potential SARS outbreaks, and so I was working at uh, the hospital for sick children in Toronto, and we were SARS screeners. So our job the whole day was to you know wear the masks and you know do intake basically and make sure everyone answered all these surveys and just to make sure they didn't have SARS. And you know, it was one of the jobs that had to be done. It was a public health you know potential crisis at the time, so it was definitely something that was important. I think that was the summer. I could be wrong, but I feel like. Ah, man, I feel like I was close to the hospital when I went to go uh, to get my comics. I could be completely wrong there. Uh, it might have been the summer after 2004. So now I'm, I'm flip-flopping. But I know it was in the summer. That part I know for sure. And I, But I just remember that feeling of reading that comic and just like almost like shaking. It was just like so good. It was so visceral. And it really connected with me in that moment. Uh, so I, I do like those moments that seem to really you know, speak out to you regardless necessarily of how old you are. But I find when you're younger, when you've probably read less... 
those types of moments probably connect more. I remember, uh, this is, again, way off tangent, but reading Green Lantern 25, which was the conclusion of the Sinestro Corps War, that really hammered me home. And I remember that one, I think I was I was working at the bank at the time, so that would be post-2007, I want to say... I don't know when. Uh, it was 2007... 2008, somewhere in that period, uh, would have definitely been after September 2007 because that's when I was working at the particular branch I remember being at. And I remember going for a walk and reading that comic, and it was just floored me. Um, so once in a while, comics still can do that. It's been a while since I remember really being absolutely floored by a comic. I'm sure it's happened recently, and I just can't remember it. But, um, you know, th- those seminal moments when you're younger, when it's like you have less memories in there, so the, the ones that do go in there are, are somehow stick with you. I don't know. Anyways, back to Exiles, the reason why I'm recording this podcast today. Um, so I'm not going to go like super in-depth on like what happens in every issue, but I'll, I'm going to lightly kind of touch on you know the, the, the major arcs here. Uh, first issue is where you get you know, kind of introduced to the fan-favorite Blink, uh, Rescued from the Age of Apocalypse, which at this point would have been like, what, six years earlier? Like, I think Age of Apocalypse was what, either 94 or 95. Um, so it's kind of crazy that that's that much later. I'm trying to think. Onslaught was 1996. I think I misspoke there, but it was 1996, I believe, was Onslaught. Um, I'm trying to remember. Onslaught was 96, which means, yeah, I guess Age of Apocalypse would have been like 94, 95, I believe. Um, yeah, because then Operation Zero Tolerance would have been 1997. Now I'm, my memory's a little rough. But, uh, you know, they rescue the character of Blink, who people had always wanted to kind of see come back, partially because, you know, they wrote her really badass in the Age of Apocalypse. You had Joe Maduro doing most of the art on her, and he, she just looked incredible. So she was a, kind of this fan-favorite character. So she comes back. You have the new character of TJ, or Nocturne, who's the, the daughter of uh, Nightcrawler. Um, you have a version of Morph, um, who is obviously a very big, you know, fan favorite from the Age of Apocalypse. This was not the Age of Apocalypse version of Morph, but definitely felt very much like that character in terms of the presentation and the humor. Uh, you had Thunderbird, um, who was John Proudstar, uh, which was kind of cool to see. And uh, you had uh, a version of Mimic. Um, and then, let's see, you had Magnus, who's, uh, I guess, the son of Magneto. Uh, so, anyways, you have this this team. They get him. You know, they meet this character named the Time Broker. Basically, says that they've been unstuck from time, um, and uh, they, you know, they're in order to be able to go back to their realities and save their realities, they have to you know correct issues in the timeline uh, from different realities. And they have like um, kind of a video screen where they kind of very quickly get to see a little bit of a brief. Uh, a primer or a primer, depending on how you want to pronounce that, on who each of these characters is, um, which is pretty cool. And, like, again, you see, you know, Thunderbird, you see how he gets uh, turned into a horseman of Apocalypse and eventually rejects him. Uh, you see Magnus being the son of uh, Rogue and Magneto. Um, yeah, so it's just, you get this kind of quick primer on who these characters are and what their what the premise is that they have to, you know, go to these realities. Otherwise, um, you know, seminal moments in their histories uh, will not happen or change and their realities will be rewritten in something pretty terrible. So they have to do their best to kind of save reality. Um, and so that their, their first mission, you know, they go and they you know, they find uh, Professor Xavier and they... they, they, they break him out of prison, not realizing that this version of him is kind of an asshole and a bad guy. Um, and that kind of leads into the, the second issue where they have to kind of figure out a way to stop this evil version of Xavier uh, from ruining the world. And again, they they lose they lose Magnus, so you have the, the first loss, um, which again shows that characters on this team can die, 
And then they move on to the next mission. And sorry, they got the Sunfire, Mariko Yoshida, uh, who becomes uh, the, the new member of the team. So you, very quickly in two issues, you establish the, a lot of information. The, the basic premise behind the team, who all these characters are, the consequences if someone dies, they do get replaced by another character who's been unstuck from time, and they move on to the next adventure. And that, like that's a great formula. Like, And I don't know why it's only ever really worked the first time. Like, they've had... Um, after the first hundred issues, you had the New Exiles, which I think the big problem there is that you had long arcs as opposed to quick jumping in and out. And I think that's part of what always worked for me is that it was not about the reality necessarily. It was about the characters, how they experienced that reality and how, then how they moved on to the next thing and how they changed as they went through all these different realities. When you spend too much time expanding the world, I don't think that needs to happen. You don't need to have, you know, I liked, I loved... I, yeah, I don't. I didn't like this part. I love the fact that you had, especially at the beginning, like two issue arcs. You got in, you got out, and at the beginning it was more, you know, kind of X Men storylines or X X related characters. But it wasn't always. Um, but at the beginning, it definitely started that way because you're an X book, so why not kind of go into classic situations? Like part uh, in issues three and four, they end up in the middle of the, the Dark Phoenix saga uh, when um, Phoenix is being judged by the Shi'ar. So you have these characters try to kind of figure out how they're reacting to this and and you know everyone has their own relationships with uh other characters such as uh gene gray so uh, mimic definitely has a relationship with her or has feelings for her uh he has a, a great fight sequence with uh, wolverine at one point um yeah like there's just so much here about these characters, again, trying to figure out how to integrate themselves into these realities without people realizing who they are and then trying to change things at the same time. Again, classic Quantum Leap meets um, <laughs> meets Sliders. I mean, that's... And what I liked about having a character like Mimic as well is that you have him slowly kind of change up certain powers throughout the storyline, which is different as well. Um, so you get to kind of see these different things happening. And... Yeah, and it's not always a happy ending. You know, sometimes characters end up dying, and that happens a lot, and then people move on to the next realities. Issues 5 and 6, um, I should say, in this collection, you have Mike McCone and Jim Calafiore are doing the art on uh, most of the issues. And I always liked uh, McCone's kind of uh, cleaner style, but there's something about Calafiore as well, who I think ended up doing most... Like, I feel like he really did a bulk of issues for... If you looked at the entire 100-issue run, I feel like he probably did the majority of the issues. Uh, he's phenomenally entertaining, and he just has such a great artistic style. Uh, Morph is really a character that really progresses in, like... Can either work or not work, and more often than not, I find these artists are really able to nail quick gags uh, without it ever feeling like too much. Uh, issues five and six are all about uh, kind of a Hulk warpath or sorry Hulk Thunderbird uh, showdown. Uh, you got to have this interesting combination where you have John Proudstar meeting um, a different version of John Proudstar from a different reality, who's actually Shaman from Alpha Flight or Beta Flight, whatever they are in this reality. Wolverine's the leader of the team, um, and like everyone has to kind of go up against. Uh, you know, the Hulk together. You also have, what I liked about this arc, is that you have the, the maturing of a relationship uh, between Blink and Mimic, which definitely becomes a huge running uh, aspect of the series. Uh, the only problem, again, is I think once the book became really popular, they felt like they couldn't get rid of certain characters, or, like, they felt like the sense of danger started to feel like it went away. Uh, whereas, again, in the first year, you felt like anything could happen at any time. At the end of the fifth issue, you have this Weapon X uh, team that gets uh, introduced, which ends up being a, a pretty big deal. Um, and the idea that you, you, know, you have this version of 
who is it? You have uh, Deadpool, you got Sabretooth, so you have this other team uh, that's going to go fighting up against not only all the heroes from this regular reality, but also the Exiles themselves. Um, which, again, is just, it's very thrilling, and it's cool to kind of see what the characters go through, especially Thunderbird, because you know, he goes through a lot um, throughout these, these, these particular issues. Um, and here you also have a revelation that the saber tooth that we see here is actually from the Age of Apocalypse, which again would have been a big deal. Issue seven, kind of a fun gag issue. It's part of the uh, the Nuff said uh, period uh, when every Marvel comic from that particular month didn't have any dialogue, um, so it was just you know just the storytelling. So a lot of it's like you have Thunderbird having a dream and he's remembering like before he was you know deformed by uh, Apocalypse and turned into this engine of destruction. Uh, he's just remembering what it was kind of like to be human. And, you know, it's kind of like a... I don't know if it's really necessarily a happy dream, but, or a very unhappy dream. You have Sunfire kind of remembering her own upbringing and having her powers and the fact that her parents were kind of disapproving. You have Mimic definitely dreaming about Clarice um, or Blink because he has uh, romantic feelings there. You have Morph having kind of a, a nightmare about kind of devolving into nothing. Um, you have TJ, Nocturne, having a dream of being with her version of Proudstar. And then eventually her and uh, Thunderbird actually hook up. You have Clarice remembering uh, Mr. Sinister and, and also dreaming about the Exiles and um, you know, having a nightmare. And so everyone's kind of having pretty shitty dreams. And then uh, you know, it ends with blinking, Mimic kind of coming together and just kind of having an embrace and not necessarily being together romantically. Well, that's definitely implied, but more of, you know, they're both having a rough time and they're able to connect and understand each other. Uh, and that was just such a, a great issue because, you know, it's interesting. It's, it was hard for, I think, for a lot of people to make that work. Uh, when you had a good, as good an artist as McCone, it was easy to let him kind of take the wheel, and you had enough visually happening and to tell the story about what these characters were going through that you didn't need the dialogue, which is not wasn't always true of everything during the Nuff Said period. Uh, issue eight, nine, and ten are part of a, a pretty fantastic uh, three-part arc. Um, which really, I, I think, was a turning point for the book. To I, I mean, again, they were used to doing two-issue arcs, but suddenly having this three-issue one, it felt so much bigger, uh, bigger and grander. Um, and it's the idea that even when we start, stuff has happened since the last time we've seen them. Relationships have kind of matured. We see a brief idea of all these different realities they've been to without really spending time in them. And we get to see that you know there are relationships happening. You have uh, Blink and Mimic together. Uh, and now they're on this reality where they have to kind of fight uh, to survive. The scrolls have, you know, ruled Earth, and you know all these characters are all the characters we're used to seeing have been all kind of captured and subjugated. Um, you and they all fight in these games, and you have all the exiles are kind of part of those games, and they have to try to figure out like how to, you know, carry out their mission and also escape. And uh, there's there's a lot going on here because you have the idea that you know Galactus is coming to Earth, and how are they going to be able to stop this? Um, you have you know alternate versions of Reed Richards. You have a, a cool version of Captain America, uh, who's basically the, the head gladiator in the, uh, the in the games. You have the fact that, that Mimic and him are kind of put up, up against each other. Again, you have all this subterfuge with the Skulls having to understand that Terax is coming, Galactus is coming, what are they going to do? And so you have all these heroes who've been subjugated finally being able to come together, and now they have to try and protect their planet from being eaten by Galactus, and the Exiles kind of trying to lead them as well. Um... And again, there's so much to enjoy there. But then issue 10 is, I think, where you get a lot more because you start to understand what's really going to happen. And uh, you have... 
you have you know everyone kind of realizing that um, not only are Thunderbird and Nocturne together, but Nocturne's actually pregnant. And that I remember reading this. I mean, I would have been like eighteen, but I was like, "Holy shit, what's going to happen?" And so the rest of the issue is basically that they're they're going to do everything they can to stop Galactus to survive. And you know, Thunderbird is able to do it, but by you know accessing everything that he was given by Apocalypse to try and save this world and trying to help to defeat Galactus. And at the very end, they don't kill him; they put him in a coma, but he's basically brain dead. And you have TJ, you know, just kind of at his, you know, at his bedside and be like, well, at least we haven't, you know, been called away. And then Blink's like, I'm so sorry, we have to go. And it's just this heavily emotional moment where Nocturne's like, no, I'm not going anywhere. I can't. I got to stay with him. You have the new, a new member comes who have a version of Sasquatch and then everyone leaves and you just have Nocturne screaming as she gets uh, teleported away, just screaming out, John, please no, John. And uh, that's, uh, as a kid, and even now, that, that's <laughs> highly emotional, like, these characters that you, you you've seen that they've been getting closer. Now you find out that she's actually actually pregnant, which kind of felt like yes, it kind of came out of nowhere. But it felt like you know we also had missed some some months while they were in this in these this games area. And uh, you know what kind of now you have the loss of this relationship and her also being alone. Uh, issue eleven is a little bit more comedic because you have everyone kind of wanting to take some time off and relax and you have um, Sunfire basically taking one for the team and agreeing to babysit Morph because um, you know Morph is a little immature and they were going to be going to like a nude beach and the fact that the, you know he's kind of ridiculous but it really gets to the core of who he is and how he just doesn't want to be alone uh, and then you have this uh, an arc with the, a two-part arc with the Weapon X characters again showing up. This time uh, you have um, Bacone doing the art on it, and you get, you get to see the characters kind of colliding with each other, um, which is cool. And again, I always liked the Weapon X characters because they were a slightly more evil version of the characters we were seeing, You know, whereas our, we were seeing more classical hero heroic characters on the Exiles, but this other Weapon X team was decidedly more... Uh, no, not more evil, but uh, had a lot more issues. And uh, there's a good remote, uh, emotional beats here where you have Sabretooth, you know, reconnecting with Blink and saying, you know, we'll, we'll find each other again. Uh, you then move into um, another arc all about Doctor Doom. Um, and again, a lot of progression on who these characters are and Doctor Doom and, and Namor. And they're trying to, you know, bring peace uh, I'm just kind of flipping through a little faster because I want to get to the issue I really want to talk about, which is issue 16. Issue 16 is definitely one of the most emotional, sad moments of Exiles. Um, it's all about, obviously, it's been a while since you know they've lost John. TJ's very sad. She And you finally get to see all these hidden moments we never got to see before of how the relationship between her and John actually progressed. And uh, so it's kind of in, in between scenes that we did see and also adventures that we only heard about but didn't actually see. So it's really cool to kind of see how these characters relate to each other. Um, and even finding out, like, you know, um, when John finds out that, you know, originally TJ was with James in a different reality and what that was like. And just the fact that they're, they both kind of miss him and then them creating a, a, a romance and being together and sometimes having issues, but sometimes not, and how they, they still want to be with each other. And then when they find out that she's pregnant and how you see, like, and again, California really nails this amazing scene where John has this, like, you know, this, this, smile, this character who does not smile, is very serious, always kind of uh, dour, uh, is smiling because, you know, TJ's whole, is carrying their baby and they're, you know, they're going to fight and do what they can to survive. And he's hoping that she has a boy. And at the very end, uh, we see TJ's just thinking about this and holding a rose 
and uh, you know, just saying I just couldn't fight without you and apologizing because she had a miscarriage. As someone who's had a miscarriage now, or not myself, <laughs> that would be a medical miracle. Um, but as someone who's had a partner who has experienced a miscarriage, it definitely resonates even more for me now. Um, it's almost hard for me actually to say it, which I didn't expect to have happen. Um, but uh, it was, you know, reading it again, exceptionally emotional. This 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 character who's been through so much and has had to be a warrior and trying to do everything she can to hold on and to fight. And the fact she just, you know, when she loses John, she couldn't do it. Um, is epically heartbreaking. And I almost feel like I have to write an email to Judge Winnick again just to say, like, how much I appreciate how he handled the topic. And I'm sure I talked to him about it in our interview, and now I can't remember. I've talked to him a couple times now. But there's just something so powerful about how he wrote it because it felt it wasn't cheap. Um, It felt like a very earned response, you know, and if someone had gone through this, like, she, it's so interesting because it's obvious that TJ blames herself. Like, you can't, you can't do anything about a miscarriage. It happens. But it's just so epically sad that not only did she lose John, he's brain dead, she's, he's gone now, but then she's lost the child too, which was the last connection to him. Uh, they don't really get to, to take things along with them when they, you know, go through realities. It's not like they had a lot of other things that she could hold on to. And the one thing that she had left was this unborn child. And then to lose it is just heartbreaking and uh, exceptionally well-written and illustrated. Um, so uh, Winnick and um, Califiore deserve all the props in the world for that. Um, and then, like, how do, you, how do you top that? Well, you have a, a, a fun issue all about, um, you know, a, a lizard-infested uh, reality, um, which, again, you know, is just a great done in one and it's 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 tragic again but again it's sometimes you know they don't end up having happy endings and then you have uh the last two issues which are all about uh morph which are a little bit more fun oriented i would say um all just about who morph truly is and what he means and, and what mojo is and you know it definitely has some sadness don't get me wrong but there is also a little bit more fun because it's still a morph story but there's definitely um, a sense of sadness as well, and the idea that maybe, maybe Morph gave up on something, and um, yeah, that maybe Morph can't have what he needs, and uh, that you know, the only reason that everyone's there, and the only reason that uh, TJ gets tortured in this in this storyline, and that it's it's all his fault, and he blames it on himself, and he's like, you know, I just want to go home, and it's just this sad moment of Nocturne just looking at him, saying, yeah, we will someday. And again, knowing what she had just been through a couple issues earlier, like it's, oh, it's a lot. It's a, it's such a great book. I cannot recommend it enough. If you have never read Exiles before, you owe it to yourself to go pick up these issues. I've spoiled the crap out of them, but it doesn't mean you can't still enjoy them. There's just so much in here. Uh, they're packed with with fun. You know, um, the stories are are interesting, and yeah, there's some serious moments and sometimes some sad moments, um, and sometimes emotion uh, emotional moments that really hit you. But it's just something really special. Um, and there's, it's just, I feel like most, like the run definitely changes. Um, once Winnick leaves, you have Austin on it. Has a different tenor. It's not bad. It's just a different tenor. You had a whole period with like King Hyperion. Um, you have this. It becomes definitely more action adventure. I would say than I would say the first, well, especially these nineteen issues, are more character centric. Obviously, it's fun, but it's fun, you know, experimenting with these alternate realities and doing different things. But um, there's just something so pure about this first year and a half of the book that it's the the, the the cleanest concept. It's such an awesome, amazing concept. I don't know how it hasn't 
come back or hasn't done, you know, you could take any team. You just have to have characters that someone can bond with or find familiar enough. And again, at the beginning, you know, Blink was a lot of people's entry character. Well, and Morph, because those are the two most recognizable. Everyone else is brand new. They're right from scratch. Like, you know, they were based on other characters. Like some of them, like Magnus didn't really have any real pre-existing version, although he died in the first two issues. Maybe a bad example. But even Nocturne, like, you know, Nicola didn't have a kid. So that's, you know, whole cloth, something different. Um, visually, she borrows from her father, but and you know somewhat of her powers. But uh, Thunderbird again was you know a character that existed, but taking him in a completely different direction. Uh, Mimic again a, a character that people would recognize, but again because of his power set, the fact that they could kind of drop things and bring in new powers, he could change on a dime as well. So just something about that that first cast was so strong. And again, I love the Sunfire ver- uh, character that they had, the Mariko version. I like the Sasquatch character they had. I thought it was always a, a really cool blend. I liked a lot of the characters that they showed up on uh, on the XLs. It was such a, an enjoyable, great book. Maybe sometime in the future I'll, I'll track down the rest of these Ultimate Collections or Complete Collections, whatever they want to call them now, and actually talk about them on the podcast. But um, I really I really recommend it. It's such a solid, you know, people sometimes look at like maybe the early 2000s as not being the best period for Marvel Comics. That is un- incorrect. You had Ultimate Spider-Man, Ultimate X-Men, Ultimates. You had Exiles. You had a lot of really cool stuff happening you know, before I think when people kind of think about it happening more, when you had, you know, New Avengers in what, 2004, uh, or Avengers Disassembled started, started that all off, and you have the whole kind of Bendis era, uh, which really kind of, I mean, he was already writing Ultimate Spider Man and Daredevil, but it wasn't really until he took over Avengers that it feels like it became the era of Bendis, where he started writing more and more of the events, and, and well, they actually started putting events back together, and he was the architect of some of them, and maybe not all of them, but he was definitely behind a bunch of them, and, you know, House of M, etc. Didn't do Civil War, which was obviously one of the bigger ones, but uh, he was involved in a lot of the other ones, like Secret Invasion, Siege, all sorts of stuff. Anyways, that's my episode, so uh, thank you for listening as we've gone through uh, the first 19 issues of The Exiles from 2001. Uh, you can rate and review the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Uh, if you do rate and review us on iTunes, please send me an email at comicshenanigans at gmail.com to let me know so I can read it on the show because if you're from the U.S., I will not see it uh, easily because I will see what's on the Canadian version because I'm in Canada and that's usually the iTunes I uh, see automatically. Anyways, thank you for uh, listening to this episode and we will catch you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>